Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. Psychologist, author, speaker, musician, former professor, and the host of Love and Life, Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. Welcome to Dr. Karen Love and Life. I'm Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. You guys know I am all about taking charge of our lives. And today's episode, we're going to talk about how we take charge of our lives and also take charge of our thoughts through our activity. We're going to look at exercise, activity, and how it affects our mental state. Now, we all know that exercise is great for our bodies, of course, and most of us know that there's a connection between our physical activity and our emotional health as well. But how exactly does this work? One thing to remember that we tend to forget, actually, is that our bodies are all one entity. We have this notion of this mind-body dualism, as if what happens in our minds is distinct and separate from what happens in our bodies, which obviously we're one entity, we're one being. And so we need to remind ourselves, and it actually behooves us to remind ourselves, that what goes on in our heads affects our bodies, and what goes on in our bodies affects our heads and our minds. And today we're going to look at this connection in depth. Obviously, this is a topic that could span several podcast episodes, and we'll continue to delve into it in future segments. And in today's episode, we'll start with the basics, endorphins. We've all heard of them. We know they're good. We know they help us. But exactly what is going on with endorphins and how do they help us? So endorphins are what we call the feel-good chemicals that are released from the pituitary gland of the brain during exercise. And they help us feel focused, they help us feel pleasure, they help us feel less pain. Endorphins enable us to feel euphoria and bliss, and high levels of endorphins help us experience an overall better mood. No question, there's a relationship between our physical activity and our emotional well-being. But sometimes people get overwhelmed. They think, Okay, I know I got to do some exercise. I know I got to get active. And then they decide, I'm going to run a triathlon or I'm going to go paleo for 17 years. And they get ahead of themselves and they set up unrealistic goals. And pretty soon they're defeated before they've even started. So I wanted to take a look at exactly how much physical activity we have to do to experience the benefits of exercise. And the good news is we don't have to run marathons to experience the benefits of physical activity. In fact, an article from Behavior Therapy in 2016 took a look at 24 women who'd already been diagnosed with depression. The results showed that exercise of any intensity significantly decreased feelings of depression among these women who were already feeling depressed. So imagine what exercise can do for us if we're not feeling depressed already. We can go from a baseline of eh, feeling okay to feeling really good. Also, I should mention that the women didn't even exercise all that long. Some were asked to exercise for 10 minutes a day, others 30 minutes. So it wasn't some huge 90-minute workout 
with squats and kettlebells and, and TRX and all kinds of stuff. It was just basic getting out and moving. Another study in 2011 from a journal called Stress found that when people who normally exercise stopped exercising, they experienced an increase in negative mood. And these are obviously just a couple findings from the robust literature on the relationship between exercise and emotional well-being. Which leads me to today's guest. I'm interviewing author and therapist William Pollan, who's written the book Running with Mindfulness, Dynamic Running Therapy to Improve Low Mood, Anxiety, Stress, and Depression. Now, when I was sent this book, I looked at it and I thought, hmm, see, I'm not a runner. <laughs> and I used to be, and then I tore my ACL, and I found other ways to exercise that are a little bit lighter on the knees. So I wasn't really sure what I was going to make of the book at first, but when I got into it, it was clear that it was very, very consistent with my philosophy and what listeners of Love and Life want to hear, which is all kinds of great ways to take charge of our lives. So I invited William Poland to join me today on the program, and he's going to talk about DRT, Dynamic Running Therapy. And spoiler alert, you don't have to run. <laughs> so that's the great thing, because like I said, I'm not a runner, but you don't have to be to get on board with William Poland's therapy and his philosophy. William, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's great to be here, Karen. So I'm really enthusiastic about DRT, and I want my listeners to understand it's kind of a big deal, really, to have essentially created a new therapeutic modality. So could you share with the listeners how you came across this and why it became such an important alternate option for folks struggling with depression, anxiety, and other psychological conditions? Okay, so you probably appreciate how useful the body can be in terms of creating a better mindset. You know, you go running, you go swimming, you go hiking. Often it shapes it, your mindset, your emotional state into a better place, right? Absolutely. So I found myself, I would say, what is this now, about 12 years ago, I found myself after a relationship having a real meltdown uh, after a relationship ended. I didn't know really what to do about it, but I knew that I would have to do something about it. And so I went into therapy finally, and I took up running, and I knew that running would be good for me. I knew fresh air would be good. I was not a runner. I was everything other than a runner. If you can imagine a list of vices, you'd find me on ticking most of them, including gambling. And it actually was with a gambling friend that I took that first run. And we only got like 50 meters or 100 meters, something like that. But day after day, we built it up. And I found that running was a place where I felt happy in a world that otherwise felt miserable. I, in my words, running, the fresh air made me feel good. I was, I was powerful. I was doing something. I was intervening in my own life. Whereas the rest of the time, like many depressed people, I felt powerless. Does that make sense? I love it. I love the phrase intervening in your own life. So the theme of my podcast is take charge of your thoughts, take charge of your life. And so it's all about empowering yourself. So intervening in your own life, in this case, physically, behaviorally, just telling yourself, okay, I could stew, I could ruminate, I could stay curled up in a ball in this depression, or I could just push myself 
in the physical realm and let then my physiology help me get out of this funk. Absolutely. And it doesn't just have to be exercise either. I mean, I've, I've just had another uh, relationship breakup, actually. And, you know, it's always a, it's always a miserable time. And, and I found I've made myself do a lot of ironing. And, you know, the simplicity of just doing I I don't need to do the ironing. I could take it somewhere else to get it done. But just that physical doing something to care for myself, for my home, for my life, to give me a sense of being in charge of my destiny, even if it's as simple as who's that American admiral who did that great speech about making your bed? Did you see that? Oh yeah, my husband shared that with me. He's like, <laughs> he's like, you gotta, yeah, you gotta make your bed every morning because at least it's that sense of accomplishment early in the day, and that kind of sets the yeah. tone for the rest of the day. You know, I agree with you, William. We really can't minimize power of that sense of accomplishment. And I've told my listeners before, and I'm sure you're familiar with this research. You know, we're so worried about self-esteem, and yet the research shows the only way for anyone us or children or whoever self-esteem we're concerned with, the only way to increase our self-esteem is to set a goal and reach it. Sometimes that means just setting little goals throughout the day, like here's my stack of ironing and I'll get it done. And then as you're talking about integrating that physicality, and of course those are very powerful forces that we're not always as aware of because we're not really looking at our neurotransmitters as they're firing differently because of the behaviors we're doing or looking at our endorphins that are now elevated. But that's where I think your approach is so powerful. Yeah, I mean, and and what I always say to people is if you're feeling lost, there's always somewhere you can feel power, whether it's making your bed or cleaning your car, just do something useful something to advance your general well-being. Find something and do that because often that'll work even better than the, the, the big ticket items you think you should be dealing with. You know, oh, you know, I hate my relationship. I hate my job. I hate where I live. Those are, those are hard things to suddenly decide I'm going to work on that. If you start off by making your bed or cleaning the car, it's surprising how your attitude towards doing those big ticket uh, items changes, right? It's so true. And that's why I love this approach. I was enthusiastic to have you on the program. I'm all for anything that takes us away from Big Pharma, which in the States anyway, is a very powerful faction of our psychological realm and the psychiatric realm. And there's so much here the default mode now has become, I'm feeling down, let me go pop a pill. And here at least, it's to the point where I'm feeling down because my mother passed away. So, you know, the last three, four months, I've been lower than my typical baseline of happiness. And I guess I need medication. And my point and others in, in my space are saying, isn't it normal? to feel depressed when you lost your mother. So we've really taken the full range of human emotions and we've truncated them such that we we only want to, to reside in this very small space of happiness. And to my mind, the options that we're suggesting to find this happiness are completely counterproductive because, of course, the pharmaceuticals don't work as well as, as you would imagine they work or as, as we're led to believe they work. And so I was very happy to have you come and share this to me, a much more, more natural, much more sustainable and healthy approach, not just for psychological well-being, but for your physical well-being as well. Because if I remember from looking over my notes that you were a smoker and you were not a runner, so you were not at all in tip-top physical shape. Shape, and yet taking this approach to healing your heart, you also helped the rest of your health. Yes. 
Absolutely. You know, going back to that point you were just making about how people uh, are medicating down into this narrow range, I think one of the problems is the level of disconnection and, and reliance on social media, etc. is so high now that when you feel something like grief to a relationship or to losing your mother, whatever it may be, it's not so much a thought of can I deal with this? I think at least half of it's like, can I deal with it alone? And the thought of dealing with it alone, the thought that I'm surrounded by friends of one sort or another, but we no longer have the kind of intimate relationship where I really feel we can sit down for long enough that this, that my best friend's going to be there for me through this journey, through this first two weeks of grief or whatever it may be. We know that everything is, it has been cut down and intimacies changed the shape of what it was. And so I think people increasingly just think, you know what, I'll just medicate myself out of this situation. Well, and you're absolutely right. Of course, the research shows that the more time we spend on social media, and I mean, now we actually have the studies coming out that show that the more time you spend on social media, the more likely you are to feel depressed and anxious. And so this notion that we're so hyper-connected by virtue of this phone in our hands, it's a false sense of connection or else it's a connection that certainly isn't working the way that social support traditionally has shown to work in the psychological literature. We're normally seeing that the more social interactions you have, you're bolstered to then deal with the challenging times, the times of grief. And so your point, I'm going to be dealing with this alone, is so true. And let's just be honest, I don't know what it's like in the UK, but here, you go to a restaurant and you'll see maybe a group of, you know, maybe it's girls night out and there's five, six women at, at a restaurant and they all have their phones either in their hands or right by their plate. And I'm thinking, are you women connecting with each other or are you just waiting for the next text? How isolating and alienating when you're supposedly with your core support system? Karen, we haven't, we're not even close to rock bottom yet. I'm telling you what, there's a lot more social decay coming. There's a lot more troubles coming, a lot more anxiety coming, a lot more divorce coming, a lot more. This problem's only going to get a lot worse before it gets better. There will be people who start to realize that they need to uh, do things like only use their phone between certain hours or, or turn it off over the weekend. These are things that, that we've got to start considering. But, but can I move on to this exciting title on your podcast, Take Charge of Your Thoughts, which I love, uh, because it triggers in me a thought about something's happening here in the UK that, I don't know, you must tell me if it's happening over there, but do you have this whole end the stigma uh, sort of movement for mental health, particularly depression? Indeed, we do, absolutely. So, you know, Prince Harry, in fact, the entire youthful uh, royal family um, have got behind this, and it's a, it's a fantastic message. But what worries me is, one, none of them are uh, qualified psychotherapists. And <laughs> so I feel, I fear they're only giving half of what I see as the message, because yes, it's a great, the first thing when you're depressed is you need to stop isolating and you need to stop feeling that shame that comes from the isolation. So you've got to stop something you've got to get out so you talk to somebody great now we're gonna we're, we're talking to somebody but guess what if all we're going to do is tell this generation that all they've got to do is find people like them and talk about their depression what you're going to do is end up with clusters of depressed people talking to each other what the, the message really needs to be 
open up, break the stigma, talk to somebody, and then take charge of your life, take charge of your thoughts, go out and do something. Because change comes through changing something. Talking is a great start, but I like to see people underline it with something more firm. I don't know about you. Oh, I agree wholeheartedly. I have the exact same concerns about this stigma. No one in the mental health field wants anyone to feel stigmatized for a condition. But at the same time, we're at the point where we have diagnostic inflation, as I mentioned earlier, to the point that people believe and now identify with a psychological illness that they may or may not actually have, which then concerns me as a psychologist who studied identity research in the past. I'm worried that people then step into an identity that may or may not be accurate and then live up to this identity, which again, and self-fulfilling prophecy, which, so that's why I love what you're saying here is yes, open up, yes, talk, and then do. Because the stewing and the wallowing, and there's research on this too, ruminating is related to depression. Massaging my grief over and over and over, I'm not getting anywhere. Now, the flip side is someone saying that I'm going to completely stuff my grief and never look at it whatsoever and never manage it, never process it. That's not what we're saying here. You're saying process it in conjunction with activity, with movement. And what I also love is you talk about in DRT that you're going to be running or walking or whatever kind of activity you're you're suggesting folks do with someone else. So as we mentioned earlier, that feeling of isolation is going to be taken away because I'm assuming you're not having people walk uh, side by side with their phones in their hands. You're having them walk side by side and actually talking to each other. Yeah, absolutely. In my book, I mentioned uh, about the power of togetherness. There's something in there called empathy walks and runs for people that who want to share and want to have important moments with, with loved ones or people who are feeling they feel are adrift in their life. But if you pick up the book for, for one of the many uh, conditions that are covered in the low mood, depression, anger, etc., there are programs there, how you walk, the, how you do that walk or run it with your friend, uh, how to choose a good friend, because I think that sense of camaraderie, it's what worked for me so well. And I think it makes it so much easier being, doing anything with somebody else, it's easier, right? But it, you don't have to have the same thing, you know. You don't both have to be going through a breakup or both have depression. You just both have to have something that you want to talk about. For one person, it may be depression. For the other person, it may be getting old or struggling with their career. And you take it in turns to talk about what's going on. And I want to applaud you as well, because I think this message coming from a man is important. At least in America, we have some gender <laughs> stereotypes that uh, and gender socialization that occurs. And men are not always encouraged to find a buddy to hash things out with. Now they might say, yeah, let's go shoot some, some uh, buckets at the basketball court. But as far as an intentional, let's walk and talk, or let's run and talk, again, they might run, but to have that intentionality of we're going to also talk about some stuff. I think is important message for men to hear coming from a man. Oh, for sure. I mean, it makes it so much easier. I, I love working with men when I'm, when I'm walking or running because they just, the, the, the movement ends up being just enough of a distraction. Um, and, and, you know, men feel good when they're doing things and getting something accomplished. Uh, and to be distracted at the same time uh, just opens up the ability to talk. It doesn't seem so weird anymore. It's for men, what's difficult is sort of sitting there talking about your emotions in this sort of static, um, I'm not doing anything about it. Men, men want to feel 
that's why that's why if you sit down with your husband and try to tell him about your problems um, and your difficult day, he'll try to change everything because he doesn't. We don't like to sit there, talk about things, and not do something about it. You know, it's so true. Yeah, I know it's so true, and uh, it's just one of those common, I think, dynamics that couples experience. And and men are just doing what they are designed to do, which is, all right, babe, I hear your problem. I'm going to fix it for you. And the woman's going, I just want you to listen and empathize. Ultimately, whether it's a male, female dynamic or whatever the case may be, if we don't get in and, and like you were saying, start doing, then we're, we're in trouble. We're not going to get anywhere. And this flies in the face of some of our therapeutic modalities. They're very comfortable just having a client continue to talk, continue to process, which is why over the years, as I've kind of stepped into my own preferred orientation, I've really leaned toward cognitive, which my listeners know as well. And they, they know a little bit about cognitive behavioral therapy and why your approach then really lines up well with that in terms of the behavioral piece of, okay, we got to take some action. That's where the power is. And I love how you said earlier that we can feel disempowered or we feel like we don't have power, but we actually do have power. It's true. And you know, unhappiness has a way of creeping up on you uh, it sort of lets itself through the front door one Monday afternoon and you're not keeping a close eye on the door and, and, and suddenly it starts creeping in every other day and then one day you find yourself miserable in your life and you're looking at your relationship and your work and your lifestyle and everything kind of sucks and you think, you know, uh, there's nothing here to really feel good about and it makes sense that um, I'm miserable. Well, that's a day that you've got to do something. You know, a lot of it's about inaction. A lot of it's about taking your eye off the ball. But when we're engaged in the world, taking risks, making new connections, challenging ourselves to learn how to play the ukulele or whatever it may be, you have to live to feel alive is my point. Yes, I love it. You have and, to live. If, I got to write that down, literally. You have to live to feel alive. No, can I use that when I'm promoting Yes. It? I'm serious. That's a great quote. I love that. That's yours. Thank you. No, I'll give you all the credit. But um, all, right. all right. I just want to use it um, because I just, it's very inspiring and it's really, oh, as we say nowadays, on brand for my philosophy. Yeah. Uh, I was just going to say that, that, that depression it can be understood as a kind of stuckness. It's being stuck in one place. So if you're stuck, get moving. Absolutely. Right? I mean, there's, yeah. I mean, just take that physical demonstration of, of where you want to be psychologically. You're stuck psychologically. You're having a hard time exactly. figuring out how to become unstuck psychologically. Well, it's kind of a fake it before you make it then. Get your body moving. Let your mind exactly. follow. And that's a big uh, confusing point, I think. A lot of people yeah. think, I'll do those things when I feel like doing them. And it's the opposite, isn't it? Yes. Do them so that you will feel like doing them. And there's a ton of research behind that, you guys. That's not just our perspective here, just us riffing. So William, tell the listeners a little bit more about your book and what it might offer them that might be different from some other books out there or some other therapeutic approaches. Okay, so the book is called Running with Mindfulness, which makes it sound like it's only about mindfulness, uh, which it's not. That's about a third of what the book is about. The book also, on top of running with mindfulness and walking with mindfulness, it has these programs, as I mentioned before, for uh, running or walking with uh, other mental health conditions, such as low mood, depression, anger, anxiety. I think there are about eight in there. And if you follow, if you go turn to that chapter, uh, 
what you do is you find an entire what I call DRT journey, where I ask you to run with specific questions to explore your relationship with your anxiety, how it manifests in your life, what your expectations in life are, what your belief system is. And we really, really unpack it. And uh, all the time I'm asking you to journal in the book. So, so you end up going on what I think is quite a useful therapeutic journey. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm proud of it. There's some good stuff in there too, for, uh, programs for running with your kids because I love to see families running together. As I mentioned before, uh, something about empathy runs, which I can segue into, into my TEDx talk, which I just gave in Manchester uh, six weeks ago, something called Movement is Medicine, which is all about this program I developed called Empathy Runs, which couldn't be more simple. It's really just where two people go for a walk or run, and one does all the talking or running and for 10 minutes, and then the other one does it for 10 minutes. But what's important about it is at no point, if you're the listener, do you interrupt, do you help, do you save, do you comfort, do you interpret? You do nothing but witness and be side by side with this person. And so it gives the sharer an amazing opportunity to really get into what they want to say. Uh, and I think increasingly, uh, we live this life where everything feels so sort of speeded up that we never get a chance anymore to construct the kind of sentences that we need to, to convey the complexity and the depth of what's happening within us. So I'm proud about that. And anybody who finds that interesting can find that on YouTube, of course. I am just over here smiling. There are so many elements that I really, <laughs> really resonate with. First of all, you start talking about unpacking beliefs, which of course gets back to taking charge of your thoughts. What are those beliefs that are going through your head in your default mode that you are assuming are true, but are they? And if they're not true, they may be causing you distress or anxiety, as you said. So I love that component. And then I have to also talk about these empathy runs because I'm thinking about, I was a professor for 10 years. I've spoken in front of people many, many times. But when I'm in a conversation, a group of people, I can sometimes feel a little bit stressed out trying to even make a point because people's attention spans are so limited that I feel a little vulnerable that I'm going to get about, you know, a quarter of the way through my point and someone will cut me off and I'll feel as if I, wait, I didn't get to really say what I wanted to say. So I love this idea of just my 10 minutes because we know there's something powerful about articulating a thought, whatever they've been going through in their mind to verbalize it. There's power now to hear their own thoughts. And if without someone jumping in in every three seconds to give feedback, to just yeah. go, wait, now I just said that, but I don't know if I believe that. There's power in that that you really can't find anywhere else. And I, you're kind of teaching people to be like mini therapists to each other, which I love. Not least of all, I, it's fantastic for relationships, particularly romantic relationships that are struggling because we get painted into our corners or we paint ourselves into our corners and we already know what the other person's going to say and we're ready with our response because it's the same response we always give. And so we're jumping ahead uh, of every sentence that they make typically, you know. But right. when I've committed to uh, shutting up for 10 minutes, <laughs> it, it, there's no point in me jumping ahead because I'm not going to get a chance to say anything. So I actually listen to you. <laughs> and, and then I'm surprised when... God, this is normally where I jump in here. And I noticed that actually now that she's finished saying what she was going to say, it's extraordinary because I never thought that that's where this conversation led to. But now I get what she's been trying to say all this time. 
<laughs> oh my gosh. And you know, I never have thought about this particular approach for a marital counseling or couples counseling session. You're right, because we just get into these, this is my comeback when she says this. And wow, are we ever really listening? Oh, good good I question. Mean, so Karen, a, a piece that I've added to it is, is, is a very simple piece where at the end of, just as in between you're swapping over those two roles, at that point you reflect back a very short synopsis of what you've heard. I heard you, yes. I heard you talk about how difficult you're finding life at work at the moment. Nothing more than that. Just so that they have to listen to you and, and they can't think about what they're having for lunch. And so that you feel, <laughs> yeah, okay, I guess he was listening yeah. to me for at least half of the, what I was talking about. You know, it reminds me when I was teaching counseling skills, when my second, uh, my second stint as a professor, I was in the grad program teaching counseling, uh, community mental health counseling, and also school counseling. And so I would teach just this empathic listening, right? Reflective yeah. listening. So one of their first assignments was go talk to somebody. Don't tell them what you're doing. Just go talk to someone. You can, it can be on the phone or whatever. You can respond as you normally would, but you cannot ask a question. You can only reflect back the content I hear you saying or the feeling that you've heard them articulating. And they would come back like, oh my gosh, I was on the phone. I thought it was going to be 10 minutes. I was on the phone for an hour and a half <laughs> because what happens mm -hmm. is the friend doesn't know what's going on, but it's the most supportive, empathic, nurturing conversation they've had in probably 10 years. And so I would, I would warn them. I'm like, it will probably go on longer than you think because oh my, people- yeah. Because the person doing it thinks, well, if I don't ask a question, how will the conversation continue to move forward? They don't understand that that empathic response will continue to move the conversation forward. So again, like you're kind of training people with some lovely therapeutic interventions that are just good practice for truly connecting in this age where we aren't connecting. It's never been more important. It's funny you say that actually, because that empathic reflecting, uh, I was listening to a podcast of, uh, I think it was Sam Harris, or I think it was Sam Harris talking to a guy who I'm going to call Voss, Chris Voss, I think, and he's, he's the FBI lead negotiator, or at least he was, kidnapped negotiator. He's just written this book called Never Split the Difference. And he talks about how when negotiating and talking to kidnappers, he recognized that the FBI needed to do something very different. And what he discovered was the power of doing exactly what we're talking about here, just reflecting back what you've heard, that empathic, because he said, if you just reflect back, People tell you everything you want to know. And he said, soon these kidnappers were just telling me everything. And I, I couldn't believe it. And all I had to do is say, you know, I hear you just say that you want a car to come around at three o'clock with some pizza. And they're like, yes, I do. And, and make sure it's a red car because I prefer red cars. And also I'm slightly worried that I've got to be home and see my wife by six o'clock. Oh, so you say you're married. Uh, yes, I am married. My wife's called Jane and she lives at 27 Holland Road. <laughs> yeah. And he said that was a massive moment for uh, for the FBI when they when they threw that piece into their negotiating. Oh, I've never heard of it used in that sort of context, but that is fascinating, although probably not that surprising. No. I mean, here they are normally thinking, I've got to ask the right question in the right way to get all this information out. And then all it is is just reflection. And it's powerful. And they're getting all the information they need to save the day, as it were. Karen, you know, we, we just have a core, core need to be seen and to be heard. Yeah. 
from not from from the day we're born to the day we die and and when you reflect back what i've just told you and you do it that simply i want to reward you i'm i can't i'm amazed that you care that much and so i'm throwing everything at you that i've got Oh my gosh, that is so funny. Just again, thinking about the negotiating with a kidnapper. Not funny in real life. It's it's powerful and, and, and therapeutic and healing and lovely in real life. But uh, I guess that's real life too. But I'm thinking in our more day-to-day interactions. So so the, the TEDx talk, I just want to highlight that again, because that's a big deal. So congratulations on that. And it, it was called Movement is Medicine. And it's all of this kind of, of stuff, essentially. Absolutely. Absolutely. Including a description on how exactly to do these empathy runs we've just been talking about. Those are these talks about where one person's silent and one person's talking. I want to try that. And I have, I've, I'm very, very, very happily married. I'm very thankful for our relationship and we have a pretty stellar connection, but I think anyone could benefit from that. Just giving that space, just go, just go. And, and yeah, and I, I won't be thinking about the grocery list because I know at the end of 10 minutes, I got to come back to you with exactly a, a, a summary of what you've been sharing. And we think it's about, we think we're going to go out there and talk about, oh, you never take the garbage out. You never do this. And this is what upsets me. Uh, but you know what? When when somebody listens to you for 10 minutes and they give you that, you're so grateful that they've given you 10 minutes of your life that the gratitude becomes a thing. And you're just like, I don't even care about the rubbish anymore. I just love you. <laughs> you're right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Just the act in and of itself. Now I'm not thinking about the content of, of the conversation, yeah. but, the, but the process, just that act is, yeah. is, yeah, is so bonding. And I really think yeah. you're right. We, can't, we cannot minimize the sense of isolation that people are feeling. There's just no question. And as you say, it, it may get worse before it gets better, before we get some constraints. Because I don't think yeah. anyone understood 10 years ago when the iPhone rolled out. And listen, I love my iPhone as much as anyone. I mean, that's how I've connected with so many listeners on Instagram. That's how I've connected with so many guests for the podcast. So I, I'm, I'm not a Luddite. I'm not trying to banish technology, but we really have to take, talk about take charge. We need to take charge of our technology consumption because it's affecting us in ways that no one could have anticipated. But here we are, be that as it may, we need to start moving in that direction. Talk about moving and doing. We need to take some action in that realm as well. Well, how about this? How about your listeners try turning off that phone, you and your partner, turn it off on Friday night before you go out for dinner or you have dinner at home, turn it off and don't turn it back on and to, for at least 24 hours and see what happens. I love it. I love that challenge. I think that's a great challenge. Do you have a name for that one? <laughs> no, really. You, a pithy neighbor. Uh, you, you name it. <laughs> well, because I like your empathy runs. You know, I like I like those kinds of synced way of of describing something. So yeah, we'll come up with yeah, something. Yeah, what about yeah twenty four the twenty four hour phone challenge? That's an amazing title, <laughs> isn't it? Let's try that. That'll work. <laughs> I'm writing it down. This okay. is good stuff right here. Yeah. Okay, good. Well, William, thank you so much for joining me today. Where can listeners find you? Where can they buy the book? Where can they see the TED Talk? You've got a lot going on, and I want them to be able to connect with you in any way that, that, that might seem helpful for them and to support what you're doing and what you're about. Oh, thanks. Great. Um, so you can find me on Apple and Therapy on Twitter. On YouTube, uh, there's Dynamic Running Therapy. 
uh, is a page I have there. I also have my TEDx talk on there, which is Movement is Medicine, uh, with my name, William Pullen. Uh, my book is available at Amazon and all good bookstores in America. It's called Running with Mindfulness. And uh, yes, yeah, so, oh, I've even got an Instagram account talking about social media, uh, which is uh, uh, D underscore running therapy. That's right. it. Perfect. Thank you again for your time. I have so enjoyed our conversation. I'm thinking now that you just mentioned again the mindfulness, we didn't talk a lot about mindfulness. And I know you said that the book isn't fully about mindfulness, but maybe sometime in the future, if you'd be willing to come back on the program, we could talk about that because that's, again, another kind of way of taking charge of your thoughts in a very powerful way. Karen, I feel like you and I are sold soul brothers, sisters, whatever it is. We definitely look at the world in, in a similar way and I'd love to be back on your show one day. Oh, thank you so much. I agree with you 100%. I've really enjoyed this conversation and thanks again and, and look forward to the next time we can talk. Great, thanks, bye-bye. So the love and life hack for this week is try an empathy run. Grab someone and truly listen to each other. Take charge of your thoughts take charge of your life. This is Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. Thanks for listening. And until next time, make it a great week. Dr. Karen Love and Life is produced by Chip Gregory, senior producer Michelle Musso, and host and executive producer Dr. Karen Anderson Abril.